Welcome to Catching Curveballs. Join Dr. Muji, a psychology professor at the University in Ohio, and her daughter, Iyabode, a research scientist in California, on a journey of how to make the most of what life throws your way. We hope to make today's podcast as informative and lighthearted as possible. So sit back and join us on this adventure. Before we get started, if you have your own comments or questions, remember to send them to catchingcurveballs at gmail.com or DM us at Catching Curveballs Podcast on Instagram. And if you like what you hear, remember to rate, review, and tell your friends, family, and coworkers to listen. The good news is that this will never be one of those podcasts where you're embarrassed to share it or even admit that you listen to it. All right, mom, another day, another episode. How are things on your end? My daughter, things are going well for me. I am preparing for and very excited to begin teaching next sets of students when classes begin at my university this week. I am so excited for you, mom. I know how much you really look forward to the start of a new semester. So I'll be crossing my fingers that everything goes according to plan. I think it's been a bit since we've shared listener feedback. So let me quickly squeeze some in before we get started on today's topic. Mom, we've received some feedback about your presentation voice versus normal one, and it seems that our listeners prefer your normal voice. Thank you, listeners, for seconding my preference with this, but it was pretty funny to read through the feedback about it. For any new listeners, quickly stop by episode 28, The Crash Course, and listen to the intro to get up to speed about this. Actually, if you listen to the entire episode, you'll get up to speed with the entire show, so head over there and listen in full. Well, do so after listening to the rest of this episode. All right, mom, back to you. Can you humor us by explaining what humor means? The definitions of humor vary. However, there is a general agreement among scholars that humor involves the communication of multiple incompatible meanings that are themselves funny in some manner. Some researchers have summarized the fundamental nature of humor as non-serious social incongruity. Social incongruity means that two or more of a person's status determinants, for example, age, gender, wealth, conflict, resulting in reduced social status. Other researchers emphasize the intentional use of both verbal and nonverbal communication behaviors that elicit positive responses like laughter and joy in their definitions of humor. Intention is not a crucial element of some definitions of humor. For example, there is unintentional humor. When I perused the existing literature, intention seems to be an appropriate characterization of much of the humor examined in classroom settings, for instance. In this literature, some researchers seem to use humor, comedy, laughter, and jokes interchangeably. We should also keep in mind that because humor is a phenomenon that can simultaneously coexist at the individual level between two people and at the group level, this makes its measurement and conceptualization complex. Okay, that's a far more elegant response than mine. All I have is that humor refers to something funny or amusing. I find it interesting that you brought up intention. 
I hadn't considered that element before. And although I naturally think of more deliberate statements or actions that are meant to make ourselves or others laugh, I can also think of quite a few examples of accidental jokes or even unintentionally unplanned funny situations. It's helpful to know that although intention isn't a requirement for humor, it's a characteristic of much of the research available in particular settings, which I can understand since it must be challenging to study impromptu, unplanned comedic moments. I don't even know how you'd set that up, actually. All right, next question, and I'm sure this is one many listeners might be thinking. Why would a psychology-based podcast devote an entire episode to discussing humor? That is a fair question, my daughter. Discussing a topic such as humor is within the purview or scope of a podcast that addresses psychology-related topics. Humor seems to be a universal experience, and its delivery and correct perception depends on context, social cues, and socialization. There are also clear physical and emotional benefits to experiencing humor. If a person delivers humor with sensitivity and understanding of the intended audience, humor can be a high-dosage intervention that improves self-esteem, increases positive experiences, and enhances relationships. So we can all benefit from having a better understanding of how different humor styles affect people and outcomes in various settings. For example, within the family, in organizations, and in society as a whole. And here I was thinking this would just be a great excuse to discuss any new comedy specials. That was my entire prep work for this episode. I just binged all of my favorite stand-up comedians and took a few notes. Just kidding, but I actually do love stand-up so much that I practically have done so, just not intentionally. Mom, I know that for me personally, humor is my best friend. I really just love laughing, making jokes, and even more so, I love seeing others laugh, even if it's at my expense with a failed joke. When I think of those I enjoy being around most, I'd say that our ability to easily incorporate humor into our communication is a major aspect of why I really like being around them. Well, these days, that's virtual, but still, it's part of why I cherish interacting with them. Beyond me and my personal appreciation of humor, What are some of the reasons why humor exists? What's its function? Humorous communication ideally leads to laughter, but there are several different functions served by humor beyond amusement. When considering how humor affects people and processes, it is important to understand that humor is not a homogeneous concept. Humor serves a variety of positive functions, such as increasing group cohesion and coping with stress. But it also can serve negative social functions, such as ridicule and social isolation. Some investigators note that humorous communication is frequently goal-directed and strategic. But individuals may have secondary social goals when using humor beyond supplying amusement, even if they are not aware of it. One broad function of humorous communication beyond eliciting laughter is social influence, which is especially pertinent to communication. Scholars have frequently conceptualized humor as an indirect form of social influence. 
Humor is an affinity-seeking behavior, and people who are liked tend to be more influential. Research on humor in advertising supports the idea of indirect influence, which estimates that over 2,000% of advertisements use humor to influence consumers. Humor can be effective in positive ways, such as when we use it to create group unity through shared enjoyment. In addition to enhancing solidarity by creating an enjoyable environment, humor can facilitate unity through softening criticism as the inherent ambiguity or uncertainty of humor provides cover if a particular remark is not well received. In contrast to enhancing group unity, people can also use humor divisively to belittle others. In this way, humor can be a means of control as mocking non-conforming behavior can reinforce power and status differences and suppress undesired actions. In other words, humor can serve a variety of functions beyond providing amusement. It can facilitate fondness and affection, soften criticism, and even help people cope with stress. Unfortunately, it can also be leveraged to ridicule others and socially isolate them. The multifaceted use of humor reminds me of a study that was published last month. It really struck a chord with me because I absolutely have always felt this way, but didn't have the scientific support that I needed. And now I do, so I'm going to keep spreading the word. This is a publication that was in the Journal of Communication titled Political Humor, Sharing, and Remembering, Insights from Neuroimaging. I'm going to bypass the methodology and jump straight into the results which found that humor within the context of news-oriented comedy programs increased the likelihood of a person to share political information with others, and importantly, improves a person's memory and ability to recall the information shared in this format of news delivery. This publication reports neuroimaging findings of an increased brain response in those regions associated with mentalizing. Mentalizing being the process by which we make sense of our mental state and that of others. I fully stand by these findings because although I love my NPR news, I also really enjoy consuming humorous news, including, of course, in the form of podcasts. And I tend to find that I share the stories that have been covered in my humorous news sources far more than those shared in the non-humorous outlets. Even if it's the same story, I'll first think of the comedy or, well, lighthearted coverage before I think of NPR or the BBC or the Wall Street Journal. Not to say the latter don't have some funny stories from time to time, but it's not the normal approach they take to reporting the news. So I would like to extend the findings from this study more broadly and sweepingly and request that all news, not just political ones, be covered with a comedic tone. Effective today, humor should be incorporated across the board. How that would be done with, let's say, tragic events, I'm not sure, but let's give it a try since we're likely to better remember the event and more readily share it with others. Actually, let's take this a step further and incorporate humor into as many facets of life as possible. Education, healthcare, finance, our places of employment. Let's test run this. No? Okay, maybe that's too far. All right, mom, I know there are a few theories that attempt to explain the social function of humor. 
why some communication results in laughter, and even the influence of humor on various individual outcomes. Can you walk us through the major theories of humor? There are many different theories that address humor and its various functions. Three theories are influential, particularly for explaining why we consider some communication as funny. These are the incongruity theory, superiority theory, and arousal theory. The incongruity theory states that a surprise or contradiction is essential for humor. According to the theory, People understand humorous communication because they are able to resolve what they perceive as incongruous or inconsistent or absurd. With incongruity theory, there is an emphasis on cognition or thought rather than the social or emotional aspect of humor. And therefore, we will consider this theory more as an explanation of how we understand humor rather than how humor functions. The superiority theory, which dates back to the philosophical writings of Plato and Aristotle, argues that laughter arises out of the sense of superiority experienced from the disparaging or ridiculing of others. Using humor to make fun of others is an example of superiority theory. Scholars believe that aggressiveness seems to be the root of a great deal of humor. However, some also see humor as a playful competition where we consider winning as either getting the joke or eliciting a laugh. The arousal theory conceptualizes humor as a complex interaction between emotion and cognition or thought. Arousal theory suggests that humor and laughter are a combination of a cognitive appraisal or evaluation of thought with optimal physiological arousal. Humor itself is a pleasurable emotional experience called mirth, also referred to as merrymaking, according to one scholar. Other versions of arousal theory hypothesize that humor and laughter release built-up tension and stress. This tension relief element of arousal theory is the basis of the coping functions of humor. The philosophy of humor. Fascinating. From my perspective, these theories aren't mutually exclusive or competing with one another per se. They just seem to highlight different dimensions or considerations that exist with humor. Another aspect I'm so curious about when it comes to humor is the various types that exist. Oftentimes, I'll hear people explain that they have or prefer a dry sense of humor or a dark sense of humor. Other times, I'll hear people reference self-deprecating humor. Frequently, I'll hear quote-unquote good sense of humor which to this day I don't understand since humor seems so subjective. What does psychology have to say about this? Are there different types or categories of humor? Scholars have generated several classifications of humor, including humor used in the classroom, for instance. The classifications vary in the number of categories of humor, with the simplest one classifying humor broadly into positive or negative types based on the function that the humor appears to serve. 
One set of scholars introduced a model of humor styles that categorizes humor use into generally positive or affiliative and provocative or aggressive uses of humor. The goal of affiliative humor is to amuse others, build friendships, or reduce tension. We use it to enhance liking and cohesiveness. Aggressive humor involves manipulating or denigrating others, and we can see it in ridicule, mocking, and other forms of disparaging humor. Similarly, another set of scholars specifically categorized humor along positive and negative dimensions in physician-patient interviews, but they also added a category for irony and tension-releasing humor which is not easily identified as positive or negative. One other scholar identified three functions of humor among friends. Solidarity-based humor, humor to serve psychological needs, and power-based humor. Solidarity-based humor involves building solidarity among group members to create consensus. Some techniques used include sharing personal experiences, highlighting similarities through shared experiences, or clarifying and maintaining boundaries. Power-based humor serves to maintain boundaries between in-group and out-group members, to raise the status of the humorist, to foster conflict with another, and to influence or control the conversational partner. Rather than classifying humor types by their function, other researchers have created groupings based on the general form of the humor. They argue that humor can be divided into three broad forms. Jokes, which are context-free anecdotes containing a setup and punchline. Spontaneous conversational humor, which can include any intentional verbal or nonverbal humor attempt that is intentionally enacted during social interactions and unintentional humor, which includes physical and linguistic accidents that cause laughter or merrymaking. These might include quote-unquote Freudian slips. For example, you intend to say six, but say sex. Still, other typologies appear to blend both the style and function of the humorous message into their classification systems. For instance, one group of researchers classified humor into nine types. Low humor, for example, acting silly or stupid. Nonverbal humor, for example, using gestures or funny faces, impersonation of specific characters, language or wordplay, for example, jokes, slang, or sarcasm, using humor to reduce negative affect, expressiveness or general humor, for example, banter, joking, or happiness to lighten moods, laughing, using funny props, and seeking others who are funny. That's far more types than I expected to hear. 
I figured you were done after you explained the general classification of positive or negative types and then the affiliative versus provocative or aggressive. That's where I thought we were done. But come to find out, there's also a batch of researchers that categorize irony and tension-releasing humor, which, as you've stated, definitely can be tough to classify as positive or negative. In addition, the context of who you're around can introduce additional types. With the humor among friends or within a friendship group, you can have solidarity-based humor, humor to serve psychological needs, and power-based humor. As if that's not enough, other experts group humor based on the form it takes. Jokes versus spontaneous conversational humor versus unintentional humor. I'm just going to lump these three with the nine types you shared, since I think it's a fair argument to state there's quite a lot of overlap. Let's now shift to why some people are so unbelievably funny. And not funny as in strange or odd, but funny funny. I secretly wish I was funny enough to be a stand-up comedian. Maybe it's not so much of a secret at this point, but if I could have any superpower, it would be the ability to make people laugh to the same degree Dave Chappelle and Kevin Hart do. If I were Joan Rivers funny or Jerry Seinfeld or Chris Rock level, my life would be complete. I'm sure of it. Because whenever I'm cracking my jokes, I just know I'm not even close to the same tier as the legends of comedy, and despite my constant practice, I'm not getting any funnier. To help us answer this question, I think it'll make sense to focus on what psychologists refer to as humor orientation. Mom, can you help us better understand humor orientation? Before addressing your question, I want you to know that you're getting funnier and funnier every day. Maybe that is a mom's bias. Back to your question. Humor orientation refers to what researchers have found to be people's predisposition to be funny. Psychologists consider humor orientation to be a communication-based personality trait, wherein those high in humor orientation have an inherent tendency to use humorous messages and perceive themselves as successfully funny across many different situations. Humor orientation is about the ability to produce humorous messages, not the ability to appreciate humor. Again, going back to using the classroom as an illustration of my points, studies have shown that high humor-oriented instructors are thought to have a more developed and complex representation of humor, and hence they have a wider collection or range of humorous communication behaviors to use. Some researchers have found that high humor orientation professors use significantly more humor than professors who are low in humor orientation. Additionally, they found that more humorous professors use more varied types of humor, including more offensive, other disparaging, self-disparaging, relevant and irrelevant humor than less funny professors. These findings are similar to those of earlier researchers who found that perceived instructor humor orientation positively correlated with many different inappropriate humor behaviors. The researchers concluded that it might be that instructors high in humor orientation are able to use inappropriate humor in the classroom without offending students because they are more skilled or because they are better able to establish a joking friendliness with their students. 
Humor orientation should assist instructors in relating to students better. Indeed, other earlier studies show that humor orientation and its ability to reduce psychological distance are also related to student-teacher interactions outside of the classroom. These investigators found that students who perceived their instructors as high in humor orientation were more likely to initiate and be satisfied with out-of-class communication with their instructor. Also, students were more likely to discuss their personal problems with their high humor-oriented instructors, which students reported helped foster meaningful teacher-student interpersonal relationships. It sounds as if those professors have already been granted with my dream superpower and are reaping the benefits when it comes to engagement with their students and a more meaningful student-teacher interpersonal relationship. So humor orientation revolves around an individual's ability to make other people laugh. When I think back to the class clowns throughout school, they were always the people I wanted to be around because it genuinely felt as if they could make any situation more enjoyable. Algebra class all of a sudden could transform into the best part of my day because of their presence. And something that sticks out to me is in line with what you mentioned around the research findings that instructors with high humor orientation use more varied types of humor and somehow navigate what could easily be termed inappropriate topics with such skill that it's tough to take offense. I've been the butt of jokes from those same class clowns, and their joke material was so funny and well-articulated that I couldn't even be upset since I was so busy laughing. So universe, if you're listening, if you ever decide to have a radioactive spider bite me or inject me with super soldier serum, I do not want to become Spider-Man or Captain America. I instead just want to be Dave Chappelle funny. I wasn't going to bring this up, but I can't resist. Listeners, before the recording, my mom kept asking me why I wasn't referencing Spider-Woman. Why did it have to be Spider-Man? And I actually told her, Spider-Woman doesn't exist. It's only Spider-Man that exists. (laughs) So we instead spent all of our preparation time looking into Spider-Woman. I still can't figure out her origin story, so I wasn't able to come up with a good joke. But listeners, if you have any suggestions as to how I can use Spider-Woman in the future, just let me know. Trust me, in my day-to-day life, I'm always looking for a chance to do so. Okay, another thing that comes up, especially in the world of stand-up comedy, is that I'll hear some men comment that they struggle to find female stand-up comedians funny. And then I'll hear the same from some women who say they struggle to find male stand-up comedians all that funny. I can't relate to this. I find both men and women to be hilarious, so long as they actually are funny. But in all seriousness, these are words I've heard from others and on more than one occasion, which makes me wonder if there are gender differences when it comes to humor. That is an appropriate question, my daughter. Researchers have studied gender differences and the use and function of humor. In the classroom, for instance, studies have shown that generally men tell more jokes than women and they do so more frequently. Male and female instructors may also be using humor to serve different functions. Men use humor to enliven and entertain their classes, whereas women either avoid humor or use it to gain control of classroom disruption. 
Students are more defensive when male teachers use non-provocative humor as compared to female teachers. But students are more defensive when female instructors use provocative humor as compared to male teachers. Male and female instructors also may be using different types of humor in the classroom. Male instructors tell more jokes and stories, whereas female instructors use spontaneous humor more. Humor used by female instructors is more relevant to the educational message than those of male instructors. Male instructors use more self-disparaging humor than female instructors. Some researchers have argued that reliance on gender role stereotypes, polarization of genders, invalidity of measures of gender, and the absence of viable theory may contribute to the results in gender research regarding communication and humor. Huh. So there might be some data supporting the frequency of joke-telling by gender, as well as the rationale for employing humor and the nature of the humor. I understand we need to interpret these results with caution, but if we're simplifying these study results, they suggest that men might tell more jokes more often than women, and these jokes and stories were more likely to be used to entertain and enliven their immediate environment. They also tended to be more self-disparaging in nature. With women, however, when humor was employed, it was more spontaneous humor and potentially more relevant to the ongoing context of the discussion in this case, more relevant to the educational message in a classroom environment. There also seems to be a differing response to humor from the audience, with students seemingly more defensive when female instructors use provocative humor. Yes, your takeaway is right on. Studies have also shown that humor, especially particular styles of humor, predict self-esteem, subjective happiness, and reduce stress. More specifically, in a 2014 study, one set of researchers found that adaptive humor styles, that is, affiliative humor and self-enhancing humor, significantly predicted self-esteem and subjective happiness, while maladaptive humor styles, that is, aggressive humor and self-defeating humor, did not strongly predict self-esteem or subjective happiness. Next up, what about culture and humor? Some scholars have noted that styles of humor are culture-dependent, that researchers from the United States have conducted most of the studies of humor in and outside of the classroom. Thus, the findings may not apply to non-Western cultures. Researchers have argued that some of the most substantial differences between cultures are in the content of humor and perception of what people consider to be funny. In one study of humor orientation and classroom communication apprehension in Chinese college classrooms, instructors' humor orientation worsened student communication or anxiety rather than reduce it. Another Chinese researcher explained that humor often identifies individuals and highlights deviations from group norms, which collectivist cultures may find stressful. 
In addition, instructional humor may make the classroom less formal, which Chinese students find inappropriate, given the hierarchical nature of the instructor-student relationship in Chinese culture. Very quickly, since I know we still have more material to fit into this episode, but part of what amazes me is the ability for the superhero comedians to reach a global audience. Because I would actually expect cultural influence and variations in what constitutes a funny statement to significantly vary. Even with the study you've referenced in which in Chinese college classrooms, an instructor's humor orientation actually worsened student communication, which is in stark contrast to the U.S.-based study we discussed earlier. I'd expect a similar pattern outside of the classroom, in which the use of humor or the nature of what's found to be amusing strikingly differs from country to country, culture to culture. Yet there are these brilliant comedic performers who will successfully use similar content around the world, or even have the exact same content viewed by people all over the world with positive results. Positive results in this case being that the viewers are still able to laugh and find these performers hilarious, despite cultural differences to the performer and other viewers. Let's start to wrap up slowly but surely. I think for today our strategies will revolve around humor therapy versus a set list of strategies. Sorry, listeners, but there isn't a quick list we can share that'll make you exponentially funnier. Trust me, I've checked. All right, mom, take it away. Humor therapy. The occurrence of humor in the therapeutic setting has a long-standing existence with the late Alfred Adler, the Austrian psychotherapist, being a proponent for the valuable role of laughter in healing. According to one scholar, the understanding of humor in psychotherapy dates back to Freud, who explained that the presence of a sense of humor in a self-actualized individual is a way to evoke pleasure from the most painful situations. Four ways therapists have used humor during therapy include conflict humor, control humor, consensus humor, and concealment humor. Conflict is a means to demonstrate aggressive behavior. Control has the ability to maintain order. Consensus promotes social interaction and concealment functions as a healthy deflection tool. Creativity or the ability to see and communicate incongruity or inconsistency in relationships, as well as appreciation or understanding that the incongruity or inconsistency is not negative, are two subcategories essential to therapeutic humor. Humor can also be an effective tool within the session or outside of the office as a standalone intervention, as well as an added component to an existing method. Some therapists have observed that humor is successful for more challenging families, especially those with stubborn children. Understanding how these individuals misuse humor in defense and therapists helping these individuals recognize how to alter that into a positive coping strategy has been shown to be the most effective tool for children. There is a humor intervention called laughing for acceptance that therapists use with families experiencing conflict and resistance. 
The design of this intervention is to facilitate discussion among all members of the family by utilizing humor in the form of self-created comic strips as an outlet for discord. After each family member shares their cartoon, the therapist would engage through processing questions such as, what have you learned about yourself in this activity? Is it okay for us to find humor and be able to laugh at a situation? How would you prefer that this comic end in an ideal world? Another intervention assists clients to examine the absurdity of their fears and anxiety. The silliness factor is a spin-off from the strategic school of thought, where the therapist encourages families to break up their pattern of fighting by doing something silly together. The laughter serves as a moment to bond, as well as functions as a break from their destructive routine. These are all such interesting interventions, and they go to show why the saying, laughter is the best medicine, exists. Last but not least, mom, we're ready for your quote for today. Okay, my daughter, I will be quoting Billy Graham. A keen sense of humor helps us to overlook the unbecoming, understand the unconventional, tolerate the unpleasant, overcome the unexpected, and outlast the unbearable. End of quote. Well, that's all for now. Thank you for spending time with us. Yes, we want to hear from you. Give us feedback on what you heard today and suggestions for topics you would like us to discuss in future episodes. You can email us at catchingcurveballs at gmail.com. That's catchingcurveballs, all one word, at gmail.com. Also, remember to follow us on Instagram for much more content at Catching Curveballs Podcast. That's Catching Curveballs Podcast. And as always, remember to rate, review, and tell everyone you know about the podcast. We cannot wait to connect with you soon.